0: Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, good evening. It's uh, good to be back with you guys. So I was in uh, Ireland last week and then leave again for Ireland on Friday, so good trips. I won't even try my Irish accent because it's pretty bad. But, uh, man, if you get a chance to go, whoo, amazing, 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 amazing. So going back for, for work again type stuff on uh, on Friday. So next Wednesday, I could possibly teach, uh, but I think it's going to be, I might, it depends on what time I get back. And international flights, uh, if you've traveled internationally or you get family that do, know that I'm, I would be pushing it and uh, just right down to the wire to make it. And so I think it would probably be best... Uh, I have not been late on a flight in about three months, and that tells me I'm due. So uh, we'll probably, I'll probably go ahead and and ask Chad Ragsdale uh, to step in and teach next week just in case I don't make it, and that way you get something quality and somebody just winging it because my flight didn't make it, but glad to be with you guys. Let's Let's start with this, all right? Uh, I always like to just throw out a few questions to kind of talk and laugh a little bit. These will never be intense, never going to ask you to share your deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, But here's here's what I know. What is, if you've got number one, uh, and we're going to call these out as a group, uh, your number one temptation when it comes to food, all right? Number one, hands down, no doubt, you cannot resist, you're in. Like, you can be on the diet all you want, but as soon as that shows up, you're like, I'm out. What is it? Call it out. Chocolate? Pizza? Really? All right. Chips and salsa gets you. So you go to Maria's, you're sitting down, you want hot or mild, both, and let's go. Okay. Anybody else? What tempts you when it comes to food? Anybody got one? Huh? Waffle House. All right. Me? I don't know why. You put a good blackberry cobbler in front of me, I'm out. I'm done. No more diet. Just give it to me. I mean, I, I cannot stop. Anybody else got one? Maple. That's another one. Man, those are good. Good, especially a little bit warm. Good maple long john. Anybody else got one? Okay. Pop tarts. All right. That works. Any flavor? The berry kind? I'm kind of the brown sugar and cinnamon. I like those. Uh, another question. Now, even though, and, and listen, this might be recorded, no one's going to know it, uh, and and we don't need to give the illusion, if, if the spirituality is legit, let it be, uh, but if you want to just flat out admit it, like, all right, here it is. If you've got one song that you know that when it comes on, you are full on tempted to dance every time you cannot control it, you cannot stop it. What is the one song, your guilty pleasure song, you cannot stop whatever it is? Somebody got one. Call it out and make it. Come on, let's have a little fun here. Let's be downright honest when it comes on. Anybody got one? What is it? A oh, section I know it. Love that. That's awesome. See, that's honesty there. I love it. Anybody else got one? You know if it comes on. If it played right now, you'd start moving just a little bit. You could feel your rear just moving a little bit in your seat right now like, oh, no, here we go. Come on. You got to have a song to get you up, don't you? I'm not going to play it. No, I won't be here next week, but I, I'm tempted to the playlist. Right now, I've got one song, and it could be great. Can't, you t- would, can't touch this. Can't touch this. There we go. All right. All right. Anybody else got a song? Somebody else got one. Pour some sugar on me. Gone. 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 So, welcome to the jungle. Gone. Gone. Any of those kind of things. All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, just to kind of laugh, get to know each other a little bit, we'll let you ask some questions at your table or talk about it at your table. Uh, I want you to talk about it real quick, uh, and, and again, keep this light. If this is a dark family secret that's going to drive you uh, to tears, then I'm not looking for that. Just don't even bring it up say, I don't have anything. Uh, but what I am looking for, if you can have fun with it, I want to know the worst gift you've ever received at Christmas. If you can think of what it is, if the person that gave it to you is sitting here and it's still a raw wound, pass. Just Pass. <laughs> Uh, and then I also want you to know, just real quickly, best gift you ever received. So think about it. And listen, when I say worst, it automatically marginalizes. Like, okay, I have to come up with the absolute worst. No, just a bad gift, a bad gift you received, and a good gift you received. It doesn't have to be the worst and best. Don't don't restrict your thoughts down. Have a little fun with it. So give me a bad gift you received and a good gift you received. Okay? Share that at your tables. Ready? Go. This is just get to know each other. Let's do it. Alright, here we go. Uh, We've got marshmallows coming around. Go ahead and take one of those and pass it. Tonight, the text is a lot of fun. Not really. The text tonight is a bit miserable, but awesome. Um, Just because it kind of kicks me in the backside. Uh, Question, Do we run out? You guys got enough? We good? Question for you. Uh, I don't know if, if it hit anybody else, but man, Michael DeFazio's sermon last Sunday. Woo! should have just slept in, I'm telling you. should have stayed home that morning. But no, honestly, it was fantastic. It really was. Uh, Tonight, we're getting into James a bit and uh, going to be diving into a section where it talks about uh, temptation. And you have to understand, I'll probably start doing more of this kind of stuff every so often because my background is youth ministry. And I think you guys, sometimes you know yourself well enough. You're still a junior high kid or a high school kid in an adult body. And you still like to laugh. You still like to have a good time. Uh, And tonight, I'm going to show you a video uh, as we dive into this topic of temptation. Let me read the text first, uh, and then we'll kind of exegete it a little bit, break it down, and and get going through it. From James chapter 1, we're going to start off with verse uh, 12. Uh, It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will see the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Wow, just saw something new there. Cool. Uh, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. All right? So we're going to talk about temptation a lot, and I thought we're going to start off by having just a little bit of fun, if you don't mind. Uh, You may have seen this video. If not, enjoy. We're going to play this. I uh, I love that video uh, just because that is me on any given day when it comes to temptation. I don't know if you... Have ever felt that in your own way or not. Uh, I have no idea what's about to auto play, so we probably should be worried about that. It's coming through YouTube. Um, I don't know, man. If you, if you can, I... Please don't do play. It is going to play something else. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Scott's like, oh, I should just stop. I have no... I'm just turning everything off. I don't even know how to turn this thing off. This is funny. There we go. We got it. Is it off now? <laughs> If you're listening on the podcast, it autoplayed from YouTube and went to something inappropriate. And I just want to comment that all the adults in the room laughed. So there we go. There's that. Uh, Seriously, though, I don't know if you've ever just... The the way we deal with temptation, it's tough, man. And maybe for you, I don't know what, as you look at that marshmallow in front of you, what it represents. Uh, That may be all the time for you when you know you should have or we should have kept our mouths shut. And we just kept thinking, oh, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. And the next thing you know, your mouth is just racing and you're saying something. You're like, why can't I keep my mouth shut? Why am I doing this? Uh, maybe the temptation for you goes all the way back to stuff Michael talked about. And you tell yourself, I'm not going to spend money on that. I'm not going to spend money on that. I'm not going to spend money on that. And the next thing you know, you've got the card out or the cash out and you're spending money on that. Uh, maybe for you, I know I work with students and I can tell you what, uh, and I know it's just as much of a temptation for, for adults uh, as it is for students, that man, the amount of, of sin and the amount of temptation that comes through a cell phone for this generation is absolutely mind-boggling. It's unlike anything. Uh, it was so much easier for me as a student and as a high school kid growing up than what it is. So much easier for your fathers and grandfathers when it came to temptation, what you all face on any given day through this device uh, for all of the blessings that it brings us, it brings a tremendous amount of curse. And, and there are those moments for a student I know where they're looking at that marshmallow saying, I'm not, I'm not going to go to that site. I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not gonna... I don't know what your marshmallow represents in the student world. I can tell you what it represents because that's where I spend my time. But honestly, it's not really all that different. For all of us, we've got that tension. We've got that, that thing we wrestle with, whether it be gossip or anger or slander or whatever it is. I couldn't list enough sins to cover everyone in the room. And honestly, the one thing that we all have in common in this room is, is the marshmallow in front of us. It's the fact that there's a sin issue or multiple sin issues that we know we struggle with. We all have that in common. I can guarantee in this room we do not have much in common at times politically. Uh, There are going to be people in this room that are way right of me and people in this room that are way left of me, and that's just part of it. I know in this room we're not going to agree on sports teams. We're not going to agree on a myriad of different issues. But the one thing we can all agree on, um, even if there's things within Jesus we can't agree on, we can agree on that sin is real and that temptation is real, and each one of us at times have or continue to succumb to it. We continue to fall into it. And so what I'm here today is to say, man, let me join you as a fellow traveler. Um, but I want to start off from kind of a 40,000-foot view and, and give a little bit of a glimpse into our country, something that I don't get. And I'd love it if we can just have a dialogue without being hateful or bashing. Um, you know, can we have an introspective conversation about this? In our country, when people make mistakes today, uh, and, and you call those mistakes just outright sin, however you want to define that, regardless. At all spectrums, from kids all the way through, you know, you know top leaders, top whatever it is that you perceive as being, you know, highly influ- influential people in our society, whether those are Olympians or politicians or musicians, whatever it is, all the way down to a kindergartner. There is this tendency that I see in our culture to not own a mistake anymore. We have this constant issue of the the blame game. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always, well, this person, because if they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. And we live, do you guys see this in our culture? This constant blame game, constant blame game. It's always somebody else's fault for the decision that I made. Well, you know what? And honestly, huh? Huh? Yeah, got to look good. Maybe that's what it is. What, what is it inherently within our culture right now that we struggle with that? Give me some opinions. Vanity, Vanity. okay. <coughs> what else? Pride, maybe. I, I, I know at times we all probably even have a little bit of that temptation to justify our own behavior. Well, yeah, but if she hadn't said this to me, or they hadn't have done this, or if this situation had gone that way, I might not have done this. I mean, I can look at it from... You know, well, man, if, if, if people understood the pressure I'm under financially, you know, they'd understand why I did what I did with my taxes or why I did what I did with my money. And it's because the government does this to me that I've got to make these decisions over here. You, you can play it out at a financial level, you know, or you can play it all the way down. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you want to go to what I talked about with students, with like pornography on a cell phone. Well, yeah, but, you, you know, I, I didn't go looking for it. It just came up here. It's not my fault. It just popped up right in front of me, and it's not really my fault. I didn't mean to do it. It was we live in a constant culture of blame. Where it's always, it's always somebody else's fault. And I think before we get going any further in this text, man, it might be wise for me. And I'm and I'm asking if it might be wise for you. I'm not accusing, I'm asking for you to take a step back before you get into this and say, Maybe, maybe within my own sin, I need to own some of this. It's not my parents' fault, it's not my dad's fault, it's not my ex-wife's fault. It's not my ex-husband's fault. It's not my former boss's fault. It's not my neighbor's fault. It's not, it's not anybody else's fault. It's not my son's fault. It's not my daughter's fault. It's not my brother's fault. The reason why I make the decisions I want to make is because I make them. And, and for this brief moment, to just settle your heart as you look at this text and go, hey, maybe the only guilty party here, I'm speaking now, is me. Maybe the guilty party here is me. And and I need to not not deflect blame. And so that's one of the things I want to cover before we get into this text because it's become a new American tradition. It's always somebody else's fault. Every time I hear somebody on TV that's talking about what they've done that's wrong, there are 45 different reasons for them to justify that behavior. I can't think of the last time until they have been caught, confronted over and over and over. They will do every last-ditch thing possible to escape guilt. And then finally, when they are an absolute checkmate... Then they'll find some reason to say, "Well, yeah, I probably shouldn't have made that decision." And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. now comes even the myriad of excuses. And I guess I want to stop now for us, if we have a tendency to do that, as we go through this text. It probably be best for us just to downshift a bit, take a good look at our own heart as we walk through this text, and say, "All right, I'm not going to blame anybody for my sin. I'm not going to blame anybody. I'm going to look squarely between me and Jesus, and I'm going to own this. I'm Going to own it for whatever it is. And I'm, I'm doing the best that I can do, even my own heart, to do that." So. Let's jump into the text uh, a little bit more. Um, before we get on, I, I think I'd love for us to start with this scripture. Uh, if you've not underlined this one in your Bible, it'd be a great one to underline. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, go ahead and read that at your tables. Great text. Uh, to highlight, to copy and paste if you've got your phone, however you want to do it. Uh, you know It is a great text. Go ahead and read that out loud. Have somebody read out loud at your table if you don't mind. Yep, first Corinthians ten verse thirteen. Again, great text to be underlining. And if you're going to commit a text to memory, I would add this one to the list. That whole issue that, and and we've got different translations in here, but knowing that no temptation is overtaking you except what's common to man, and that God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So automatically the whole issue of, man, I I just couldn't handle, I couldn't couldn't resist. Uh, I love that marshmallow test video we just watched. And just sitting back and taking stock and saying, God is not going to put any temptation or allow a temptation to be put in front of me. I'm going to change my wording on that. God will not allow a temptation to be put in front of me except what's common to man. Everyone's faced it. Nothing new under the sun there. And, and he, you know, he will provide me. And so that's the thing I'd first say as we get going through this text. One of the things I, that I talk to, to people about all the time is look for the escape route. Look for the escape route. That God is all about giving you the exit strategy. And, and when that temptation's coming, no matter what that is, from taxes to cell phones, always be looking, saying, God, you told me there was an escape hatch here. You told me there was a fire escape. You told me there was a back door. You told me there's a way to get out of this. God, help me find it right now. Help me find this escape path. And, uh, and I can tell you that, that he has promised uh, that he would provide that. He's faithful, and he'll give that to you. Um, but as we get into this text a little bit more, this whole blame game starts early on. You know, I blame it on our American culture, uh, but honestly, it started way before then. You know, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, blame's been a part of the game. Uh, we have just, in American culture, perfected this uh, to an art form. Uh, but we see it all the way back in Genesis. I mean, if you open your Bibles, turn uh, in your groups, let's read a few, a few texts real quick. Uh, somebody read Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. I'm going to have you guys reading a lot of Bible at your tables tonight. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at 12 and 13. Somebody go ahead and read that. Genesis chapter 3, 12 through 13. Got a volunteer? Just go ahead and read that out at your table. Okay, do you see the layers of blame game taking place? What are the? Give me the layers of blame. Who's blaming who? You got. Eve. Yeah, Adam's blaming Eve. That woman you sent here. Okay, and then you have got Eve. What's she doing? Well, that that serpent you put in the garden. And in all of these moments, you've got you've got this blame shifting. And man, as parents, we understand that. We get that. We watch our children be experts at this. Uh, but again, we'll get off this blame conversation. But I guess I want to I want to slow down and say. Let's stop here in our own hearts. James does a few things um, to talk about just this, this issue of temptation. Uh, he's going to start off, he's going to go through four steps here, four turns he's going to take in this text. One, He's going to talk about the nature of evil. We'll get to that in, th- in chapter 1, verse 13b. Then he's going to talk about the nature of man, talk about his character a little bit. You'll see that in verse 14. Then he's going to talk about the nature of lust when he gets into uh, verses 15 and 16. Then he's going to talk about the nature of God. But then finally, in verse 17, he's about the nature of God. But then in verse 18, he does this beautiful thing where he talks about what it, excuse me, what it means to be regenerated. Um, I would say that the, the believer who can persevere, if you can persevere in the midst of trials, I think that does about, it. I'll, I'll say this, this is, this is one of those bold, broad preacher statements that somebody may confront me on later on. I'm like, yeah, you're right, I should dial that back. But I could, I could say that as a believer... That who you are in the midst of trial and temptation probably says as much about your love for God as any other attribute in your life. Now, again, I might want to dial that back if I thought about it a little bit, but I'm going to start and let that hang out there for a little bit. Um, you know, Bill Hybels makes a good comment when he writes about what character is. Anybody write his book on character? Old book, old, old book. He, I mean, how would you define character? He defines it really well. It's a great, great definition he gives on character. It's who you are when no one's looking. I had this conversation with my six-year-old the other day. I was like, "Sai, let's talk about character. Character is who you are when no one's looking. His eyes kind of glazed over. I'm like, okay, dial it back, Dad. Let's talk through this and explain it. I, say, I said, "Sai, the decisions you make when I'm not around, the decisions you make when you know the right thing to do and I'm not in the room with you or Mom's not in the room with you, I said, the decisions you make when we have no idea what you're going to do, buddy, that's who you really are. And I think that, honestly, trials and temptation are exceedingly great teachers to reveal our own heart. If you want to get a glimpse at your heart, find out who you are when no one's paying attention. And trials and temptations are a great way to figure that out. So here we go. Let's get going through this text. Um, I want to look at this scripture. I'm going to read this. So if you want to turn with me, Revelation chapter two, uh, verse 10, we're going to start off actually. So before you go there, my bad, hold on, let's start with James. Um, he says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Um, That word, blessed, kind of takes us all the way back. When you hear the word blessed, and you're the half-brother of Jesus, what does that take you to? He leads off, blessed is the man, takes you straight to Sermon on the Mount. You know, probably for you, the most famous sermon, and and perhaps for James, because he didn't believe in his brother, may have very well been one of the few sermons he heard his brother preach. You know, we don't know how much time James spent around Jesus, we know he's a half-brother of Jesus. We know for a long time he doesn't believe in Jesus. But I don't know if he's there for the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if he hears that. But he does this cool throwback. In fact, look at your, we're going to look at that in, uh, um, look at me real quick at Matthew chapter 5. Before we go to Revelation, let's do some stuff here. Matthew 5. He does a, a great reflective statement, even back on what his own brother said. Uh, if you get your Bibles, I love it when you guys read at your tables. Somebody read Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. 5, 11 and 12. 5, 11, and 12. Okay, do you feel the symmetry between what James is writing and what his brother said? you see it? It's this whole issue of blessed. And in fact, another time that Jesus gets into this, I just thought of, is... uh, um, Let me find this. Um, Yeah, here it is. Jesus tells this parable uh, about the soils in Matthew chapter 13, uh, and it kind of hits on the same issue. You know, he goes, if you remember the story of the, the, story of the sower, the story of the, the parable of the soils. I don't know if you guys have, have grown up here in that Matthew 13. There's these four types of soil that he walks through. You know, the farmer comes out, he's going to get their seed on the ground. The first bit of seed, it lands on, you know, the path. And the path is so hard packed from people walking on it that literally the, sur- the seed can't even penetrate the ground. Birds fly in, representing Satan, and it and it snatches up. And the seed represents the word of God, represents the good news. The the sower represents the-, the farmer sowing the seed represents God. God throws this this good news down on the soil. The soil represents the heart of man. A man's heart is so hard that the seed bounces around, birds come in and get it, okay? You know, the next one is he throws, you know, uh, the seed on the rocky soil, you know, and, and this, this, and then he's got, you know, the different kinds of soil, he throws it in there and there's weeds that grow up all around the, the other soil, you know, it's, it's good soil, but it's, it's got weeds all infused with it. And then finally the fourth kind of soil is good soil. It's interesting the way Jesus words one of these. He says, the one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word at once and receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he falls away quickly. And so this issue that that James is getting into when he gets into trial is a critical issue in our spiritual life. How we respond to trials. And honestly, the same word that James uses for trials earlier in this text is the same word he uses for temptations. He doesn't draw a big distinction between the two. That both of these are great opportunities to test our merit. To see what we're made of. you know, And you know that when that temptation comes, you know the moments. Let's just you be honest in your own heart. Those moments when that temptation comes and you give in, that's a bad day, isn't it? You felt that? Like, man, what the heck was I thinking? What am I doing, man? Just literally the guilt that comes in, the sickness in your stomach. Like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why am I thinking that? Why, why, why? And then all those moments, you just feel like, God, God, man, grace, please, mercy, please. You feel all of that washing over you. And then those moments where you stand firm in the midst of temptation, and I don't mean like cockiness or arrogance, but those moments when you want to do wrong, and you just literally in that moment, just claim the name of Jesus and say, Lord, no, I claim your name. And in this moment, I'm not going to, I'm going to resist Satan. I'm going to resist, resist this temptation. I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to make that decision. I'm not going to say that comment. God, no, I want to be your child, I'm a son, or a daughter of the king, and in that moment, man, the energy and the spiritual, you know, fire that wells up inside of you when you do the right thing. I'm just telling you that trials and temptations are great barometers, and honestly, they're, they're great incubators for your faith, and it's a beautiful thing that God gives us. And so let's go through this. He does this thing where he says blessed. We talked about that a little bit right there. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres in the trial because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that is promised to those who love him. Hey, if you're listening to the podcast, let me offer you about 20 different apologies because I pushed a button and stopped it with my hand. So my bad. Let's get back in where we're at. Um, What was I talking about? Because I just totally lost my train of thought. Trials, temptations. Yeah, trials and temptations. I know that. But, huh? Blessed something. Let's just move on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about, you brought it to me. You helped me. We can talk about, about this one verse literally for, I mean, we could write books upon books upon books on this verse. And I know when you read it, so for some of you, you might be seeing it in there, but there's a phrase in there that is so utterly complicated, a phrase in there that has caused so many different conversations at a theological level. But let me just tell you, it is beyond messy for me to wade into it. And I'm just a borderline, borderline a little bit intimidated about going down the path. Uh, anybody know what the word is in there? Want to guess what the word is in verse 12? Complicated word, folks. Complicated word. I don't mind that one. You want to guess what it is? Yeah, life is okay. I'll tell you what it is because I'm just playing this game with you right now. You're like, oh, come on. Um, it says, he will receive... The crown of life. All right, folks, this whole issue of crown and all of that, first of all, I believe this is metaphorical, not literal. Um, I do believe there is a crown of life, but this issue of crowns and heaven and all of that, it is all over Scripture, and honestly, I don't know entirely what to do with it. So let me just give you, I'm going I'm to take this down to a real basic level. Lots of schools of thought on this. In terms of when, you know, you've heard people say, well, man, you're going to get an extra, you know, an extra jewel in your crown when you get to heaven for what you've done. We, we've all at some level heard those conversations. And, and, and all of those comments are are born not from some, you know, theological stupidity. There, there really is some stuff throughout the New Testament that's kind of like, oh, yeah, there's some stuff in Revelation. You're going to find some stuff in First Corinthians that makes you kind of go... I don't know exactly how this plays out when we get to heaven. I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I'll tell you that it's not, it's not as simple as some might want to make it out to be, that there are a lot of really smart guys that are, that that have got a lot more, you know, depth of biblical training than I do that would look at you and say, actually, there is some variance. Like I can give you one that's like, we're going to say, no, we get to heaven. Everything's going to be the same. We're all going to be the same. Well, of course you're going to think that you've grown up in America, You know, where all men are created equal, you know, that we put a Western mindset on this, but I can tell you right now, there's going to be one group of people that look different than the rest. Actually, there's gonna be a couple of groups of people that look different than the rest of us. You know, there's going to be some elders there. They're going to look a little different than the rest of us. I can tell you that we know there's some people that are, that that are literally called out in heaven because of what they're wearing. And and something tells me the fact that their robes are called out, that something about them stands out. Anybody know what color, what that robe is and why they look different? In Revelation, we could go there right now, but I can't remember the book, the chapter and verse. It's a group of people that get called out. John sees them, wants to know what's going on. It's like, oh, yeah, those people. Yeah, they're different. You might know what color what, what they're wearing. What color robe are they wearing? It's white, actually. Anybody know why they're wearing white robes? Nope. These are the people that were persecuted. They gave their lives. And so within all of this, there's some moments and some things in heaven that we can't always wrap our head around. I want to tell you that what James says here is not a throwaway statement. But I also want to say that theologically, I don't always know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it when, when Paul talks about, you know, your faith being refined by fire. And there's, there's things that, that, are, last that are of gold and of silver and all of this. I don't know what to do with Paul's statement at that moment. And, and honestly, this issue of crowns, there's all kinds of different crowns that are mentioned all throughout the New Testament. But we're not going to take time to study all those. Literally, we could take a week on each crown mentioned and fill up this entire schedule. I'd say it's pretty amazing. There's a lot we don't understand, and uh, man, encourage you to mine into it a little bit more if you want to. I'm not going to here. That's about as much as I feel comfortable getting into other than saying something tells me that that it's a little more complex to understand than probably what what I grew up thinking, because in my mind, we all show up to heaven, and everything's the same. We all show up. We're all bound before Jesus, and, and everything's there, and I'm like, well, actually, there's a whole series of different crowns that are mentioned, and I know these people are in white robes, and And I know that you're given a new name. And different things happen when we get to heaven that are like, okay, how does this all play out? And there's just a lot we don't understand. But we know this. James mentioned mentioned something here. He says he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In this context, I believe that's salvation. I believe in in terms of what that crown means, I think he's saying you're going to receive a crown of life, eternal life. Let's move on. He says, when tempted, jumping in now to verse 13, Um, let's see, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get into that revelation stuff. I took way too much time. We got to move on. Uh, Verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should ever say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. All right. Um, Let's look over real quick to a couple of different verses. In your groups, let's look up Matthew. One person, you look up Matthew 6, 13. Can I get a volunteer at each table to do that? Volunteer got Matthew 6, 13. Somebody call it, say you got it. All right. Somebody take uh, Luke chapter eleven verse four. Somebody got it? Call it Luke eleven four. Who's got it? Okay. Let's read those real quick. Uh, the second one was Luke eleven four. Hopefully I had to write down the wrong verses. Those are the right verses. Okay, they work. good. I'm always worried I'm gonna type in the wrong You're like Okay, ah. we get those? All right, so this whole issue of lead us not into temptation, um, let, let's talk about that for just a second. Now, if you're saying lead us not into temptation, at some level, if you're just going to look at that from just sheer right, outright logic, that would imply what? That he would lead you into temptation, that you have to therefore ask him not to do that. Well, lead us not into temptation because actually you, you actually might do that. Uh, Jesus is using it's a figure speech he's using, and I'm not going to go through and try to explain the, the Greek term for it. But he's using a, a figure speech. We do this all the time, uh, and, and what it means is um, he's going to express a, a positive idea by stating something that almost sounds contrary. And we do this kind of stuff. You know, if I say, you know, that's quite a little bit. Now think about that. I'm, I'm stating something. It sounds like a, it, it sounds like the inverse. Does that make sense? Or if I say that's no rare occurrence, what does that mean? If I say it's no rare occurrence, it happens all the time. You have to understand, when he says lead us not to temptation, he's saying that God would not lead you in temptation. He's saying that, man, God, if it's possible as you direct my path and you see temptation ahead of me, God, would you redirect my steps? God, could you move me around that? Could you, as you lead me, as I follow you, could you take my steps in a way that helps me get away from this? And it's not saying that, that God has, you know, got, got a fishing pole with a carrot on it, and he's saying, I'll in front of it going, uh-uh, uh, it's right up here. No, what it's saying is that God, as I follow you, and as, and as you're leading me this journey, would you please lead my steps someplace that keeps me far away from all of that? And that's a beautiful prayer. I mean, honestly, the prayer that I pray over my kids every night is that they would walk with the Lord all the days of their life. That's my consistent, constant prayer in their lives. And honestly, the prayer heart in that is lead them not to temptation. Now, I know God's not going to lead them into temptation. What I'm ultimately praying is, God, keep them away from it. God, direct their steps. God, move them this way, move them that way. God never takes temptation and places in our lap. That's not who he is. So why does he even allow temptation to happen? I mean, why? Why does this even happen? I mean, surely if he's a good God and he's got the ability not to lead us in temptation, why didn't he just, like, help us all avoid it? Ah, explain that. What do you mean by love? You're right. Yeah. Love at gunpoint's not love. Okay. If you take away the opportunity, Mm -hmm. you're forcing me down this path. Yeah, he's not forcing us down a path. Yeah, and I think at some level, let's look at, let's take that that concept, love as a father, and let's let's flip it just a little bit over here. Um, Do you ever intentionally allow your children to get into situations where failure is a possibility? All the time, man. Honestly, every time they walk out the door for crying out loud. But as parents, we realize that, that part of letting them be in difficult situations, part of letting them navigate that aspect of life is meant to bring about maturation. It's meant to bring about strength. It's meant to bring about attributes within that make them stronger and make them better. If we leave them over here in this shelter-protected area, their ability to make the moral decisions they need to make as a child are greatly inhibited. Makes sense? You follow me? So in some ways, God's saying, I'm going to allow this to be in front of you. I'm going to allow this test. I'm going to allow this temptation that Satan's bringing against you. I'm going to allow that to be in, in front of you because honestly, this test is going to be good for you. You need to go through this. It's kind of like if you were in a school system and the subject matter is put in front of you, but you knew you were never going to be tested on it. You knew that you were never going to have to have a one time have to go through any process to show what you've learned. Now, some of us that are, you know, some of you, not us, I'm going to pull myself out. I try to speak collectively in most of my language. Now I'm just calling you people uh, that would study and do it anyway. You're awesome. The rest of us who be like, awesome, I don't have to read anything. I don't have to do anything. In this moment, I think a a good teacher realizes, you know, what? in order for me to make sure that this information is making into your mind and your heart, I need to test you on this. And that test is not to be meant to be cruel. That test is not meant to be harsh. That test is meant to be something that helps you lock that into your brain. And it's also meant to be something that helps me measure. Have you learned? Have you grown? And what these tests and trials do when God allows them to be placed in front of us is they're amazing incubators. They're amazing laboratories to find out where we're at spiritually. And he'll never put one in front of you, 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 10, verse 13, nothing we ever be put in front of you that you can't handle. He'll never put one in front of you that you don't have the ability to bear. But the truth of the matter is, that temptation won't come from him, but he will allow it to take place. That's the nature of the world we live in. He's going to allow it. He's not going to stop every single thing that comes your way. It's not from him, but just like his parents, we don't stop our kids from walking out the front door. We let them experience and explore the world, and we challenge our hearts on how to integrate, how to deal with it, how to face it, we're going to walk in every day facing temptation all around us. And that's an amazing opportunity for us to test our own hearts. Okay? Let's keep moving on. Lots more to say on that, but we got to get moving. Um, That word, I told you, that word in in 13 translated uh, trials, it's the same word that he uses earlier uh, to talk about temptation. And basically what James is trying to say is that, man, Whether it is a trial or whether it is a temptation, both of them are great opportunities for you to grow spiritually. Growth are great opportunities for you to to grow in your relationship with Jesus. Both are great opportunities for you to find dependence on him. They both are great learning opportunities. Um, Let's keep going here. Uh, Verse 14, he says, But each one, when tempted uh, by his own evil desire, is dragged away and enticed. Man, that is, that's tough. That, that word drawn away in verse 14, um, it's got the idea of wild game being drawn to a trap. So typically, here's the way this plays out. You know, like we talked about food, and we kind of dialogue this whole issue of what's the one food you can't resist. Now, I throw that out because it's safe. It's safe to talk about blackberry cobbler and long johns and pop tarts and pizza Those are safe conversations. But but what is the temptation for you? I mean, in your own life, that when it comes up in front of you, it's hard. You know it. Chances are, right now, as you get that marshmallow sitting in front of you, unless you've already eaten it, you you know exactly what it is, man. And, And it probably doesn't take a whole lot of thought for you to sit there and go, whoop, yep, there it is. I mean, if we could turn that projector on and play a bit of your life, we'd, we'd get a pretty good reoccurring theme in terms of sin that comes up. We're somehow to portray this out right now. And it wouldn't take us long for us to identify in your own life. It wouldn't take you long to go, here it is. Let's just lay it out there. This is what I struggle with. This is, this is my, my proverbial marshmallow. This is what I'm always drawn to. And, and I don't know, man, what it's like for you, but it's those moments when you know you shouldn't go there. You know you shouldn't think that. Whether that's a, an attitude of anger or an attitude of gossip. I, literally, I don't even know how many different sins I call out right now. Whether it's an attitude of greed. Whether it's an attitude of hatred. Whether you've got an issue with lust or pornography or whatever it is. I don't know. I can't name them all. But you know that moment when left to your own devices, all of a sudden your mind starts wandering and out start coming the old feelings, out start coming that old nature and it starts welling up inside of you and it starts percolating inside of you. And for some of you that rears up in clenched fist, and some of you that rears up in secrets and some of you that rears up in your finances and it shows up in your checkbook. I don't know, man. I'm not trying to, I'm t- trying to bring up accusation as much as reflection. You know it. I know it. I know what it is for me, man. And it's that moment going. (laughs) And typically, I just want to say typically what gets me into that problem. It's not like that sin just showed up on my doorstep and said, surprise, I'm here. You know, it's not like the sin walks up and rings my doorbell. You know, what I mean, metaphorically speaking, it's not like the sin like, hey, I've been looking for you. No, usually what happens is I've let my own mind wander. I've let my own heart wander. That my own desires have started to well up inside of me. Whether that be anger or abandonment or frustration. Sometimes days in advance. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great insight. Yeah, that's a great insight, man. You're in it. That's a great insight. If you're listening to podcasts, it comes days in advance sometimes. And you know what's coming, you feel it brewing. You feel the storm rising in your own soul and you tell yourself over and over, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. And the next thing you know, it's like you just kind of get lured over here like an animal getting caught in a trap. That you see the bait laying on the trap, you see it sitting there and you kind of walk around it, you look at it, you turn away from it, but the whole time you still stay in the same room as it. And you do everything you can to that marshmallow until finally you're just about ready to devour it. And that's what James is getting into. He's saying, man, it's our own evil desires. It's not God. It's us, man. It's us. And Paul says in Romans 7, I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. We'll get into Romans 7 here in a little bit. I want to do right. Do you ever feel like you want to do the right thing, but evil's right? It's right here. I love what the cartoons have done, honestly, where at times they put that angel and the demon on the, on the shoulder, the little devil. At times you're looking at going, oh, it's silly, or oh, that, that diminishes. But within that is a spiritual truth. And at times it feels like both of those natures are at work around us. I want to do right, but I still do wrong. I want to do right, but my language still does this. I want to do right, but my attitude still does this. I want to do right, but my anger takes me here. I want to do right, but my eyes take me here. I want to do right, but my hands take me here. I want to do right, but my feet carry me here. And, Typically, it's not that sin showed up on our doorstep and rang the doorbell and said, hey, I'm here. Typically, we went looking for it. In our own minds, in our own hearts, we sought it out. We sought it out, and we're to blame. And this nasty old mess we find ourselves in is our own stupid fault. You ever felt that way? Yeah, and I think that's what James is getting at right now. Let's keep going. He gets to that word, he says, drawn in, is uh, th- that's an example of game being lured at a trap. And then he flips it again, and he uses the word enticed. So the first one, any outdoorsman in here, I love to hunt and fish. It's, it's one of my, my hobbies. I love what James does with these two words. Drawn in is, like I said, that's, that's putting a trap out with, when you're trying to draw in game. Enticed, that's casting bait. Uh, that's when you're just, you know, you're just casting it out there. And honestly, man, there, there are times you know, where you know yourself well enough that it doesn't take much of a bait going in front of your face that, man, you're like a fish and you're just chomping down on that. And honestly, I think sometimes for, for some of us, when it comes to our sin, you know, honestly, we're, we're kind of casting it out there secretly, hoping that we can, we can, you know, get drawn in. You know, it's like, you know what, it's been, been a rough week, and we'll justify our behavior. We'll justify our anger. We'll justify our hostility. You know what? And then all of a sudden, you know what? You know what? I need that drink. And the next thing you know, you're stone plastered drunk, and you're wondering, how did I get here? Well, it starts off that whole blame game. And we get enticed. We get drawn in. We get sucked into this. And it's, it's a whole lot more on us. A whole lot more on us. Moving on. Moving on. Chat. We're going to verse 15 now. Um, verse 15 states this. He says, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Whew. That's kind of, a, it's kind of a gross image at some level. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the old movie, The Matrix, you know, where the critters right there in its stomach. You know, you remember that scene in The Matrix? If you've not seen The Matrix, great movie, fun movie. But all of a sudden you realize that, man, th- this sin... The fact that it's conceived in us is kind of a, it's kind of a a scary metaphor. When you really draw it out, like, okay, where's that seed from? Yick, you know, from evil itself. And and when that is conceived in you, that evil desire, he says, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Um, We're gonna flip now and talk about this for a second uh, because I want to give you hope. we're going to flip back and forth right now between between uh, this text in James and in Romans 7. Get your Bibles turned, turned over to Romans 7. Man, if you're sitting in this class right now or you're listening to the podcast and you're like, you know what, I'm really screwed up. <laughs> and if you're sitting here going, you know, you know your heart, you know your mind, and sometimes you're thinking, man, if people really knew what I struggle with, they wouldn't even want me in this church. If my spouse knew what I really thought, or my kids knew what I really thought, or my coworkers knew know what I really thought, man, I, what a bad deal that would be. If people understood all of the dark things that I've done, and I want to tell you that man, even the most godly people on the face of the planet feel like you feel. Here's Paul. Paul writes this amazing chapter called Struggle with Sin, part of the chapter. And we're going to read it because I think it's important to this conversation. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So basically saying, is it, is it wrong for God to set standards? Well, no. No, those, those standards are good. We need standards. We need law in our world. And in the same way, God establishes right. He establishes wrong. He establishes ways. And those aren't bad. What's bad is the fact that I continually rail against them. And Paul says, you know what? I realized I was wrong when I measured my life against God's ways. That's what he's saying in that text. And he moves on through it. And he says, for I would have known what coveting really was if the law said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every covetous desire. It's like this, for example. Whatever you do, don't look at these keys. Do not look at the keys I'm holding in my hand. Whatever you do, don't look at them, man. Don't look at them. Just whatever you do, just look wherever you need to look, but don't look at these keys. Seriously. Don't, not really, don't look at these if you don't mind. Just do not look at them. Do your best. Don't, what do you want to do right now? Yeah, just go and get it over with. Just look at the keys so it doesn't drive you crazy. You want nothing more than to look at the keys. Like, I got to look at the keys right now. And and at some level, we're like kids. Like the moment God says, don't, I want to do it then. And God's like, no, wait, wait. My my reason for saying don't is not to somehow rob you of joy. My reason for saying don't is not somehow to keep him having fun. It's because the things things I'm saying don't, they lead to death and destruction. They're going to ruin a marriage. They're going to ruin a family. They're going to ruin a life. They're going to cause you to be destructive in the way you raise your children, destructive in the way you work. I say don't, not to keep him having fun. I say don't because I'm trying to give you life and if you'll follow my, my law, it's going to give you life. Everything I'm telling you not to do is not to be mean. It's meant to protect you and keep you healthy. It's like when you look at your kids, you say, don't touch the stove. Okay. You didn't say that to be cruel. You said it to protect them. But even that moment, for Paul, he says, the moment God said, don't covet, that's all I wanted to do was covet. He's honest about it. I love that about Paul. Let's get down. Uh, down to verse 12. He said, that, did that which is good then... Become death in me by no means in order that sin might be recognized as sin; it produced death in me through what was good. So through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And now he's going to get into it. Watch this. He says, "We know that the law is spiritual. We know these. We know that God's way is good, but I, I am unspiritual." Okay, come on now. You know God has said, "Don't lust," and how many of us have struggled in our lives with lust? We know God has said, don't lie. And how many of us in our lives have struggled with lying? We know that God has said, you know, you know, we can just keep going through these all day. I need to stop. The point being, we know it's right. Have you ever felt like, dude, I'm I'm absolutely unspiritual at times. You ever feel that way? Like, like at some point you're like, am I just putting on a show right now? Am I like just trying to fake it till I make it and trying to muster up some sort of spiritual growth to get through this? Like is this real? Is this genuine? Because everybody else looks like they've got their act together but me. You ever felt that way in your life? Like everybody else seems like they got this all figured out. And I'm over here realizing I've got some thoughts over here and some actions over here that just don't measure up. Like, should I be here at all? I love what Paul says here. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Paul's saying that for crying out loud. He goes on and says, he says I'm sold as a slave to sin. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. Now, there's going to be a lot of do's in here. Be patient. Oh, sorry. Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I don't understand what I do. Now, maybe you can think of what the marshmallow is in front of you, and maybe you wonder, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep doing that? Why? And if it's not you, because maybe you're in a great place with Jesus right now, and you've you've been really persevering through trial... Maybe think of, of one of your kids or one of your friends. Walk through the text with them in this image. Paul says, I don't understand what I do. For, for what I want to do, I do not do. <sighs> but I hate what I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I, I agree that the law is good. As it is, I no longer, I myself, as, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it but sin living in me. Now, that goes all the way back to what James is saying. So, I don't want to get, I, I got to be careful of this illustration, so extend me some grace here, theologically extend me grace. For all practical purposes, there are two of you sitting in that seat right now. Two of you. You're like, well, okay, where's he going with this? What I would say is that for you, there is, the child of God redeemed by the Father, this whole issue of the regeneration of Jesus, His blood washed over you, knowing that your sin is forgiven, you have been redeemed and claimed, sanctified, purified, and set apart through and by Him and for Him. And regardless of how this world might try to define you, regardless of what they might say against you, regardless of what Satan may rail against you, you are a child, a daughter, a son of a king. But at the same time, There's this nature in you that you continue to live with. That even though Satan has been defeated, you know that sinful nature still rails up in you. You know it rails up in you. There's a movie. A girl took me to go see it in high school. Hated the movie. If you've not seen it, I talked about this last time I taught. Don't go see it. Waste your time. Waste your time. But she was cute, so I went. And uh, we went to the theater, and I had no idea what movie we were going into. And I agree to go because, hey, cute girl, I'm a sophomore, junior in high school, and hey, we might get to hold hands in the movie. Let's go. Uh, So I go to this movie. We're sitting down, empty theater, and I'm like, this is going to be a terrible movie. Don't really know this girl. It's kind of our first date, you know, and I'm really anxious, really nervous. She's really cute. I'm really nervous. And then this movie starts playing that is absolutely the most stupid movie I've ever seen. In fact, we never went out again because I thought I couldn't stand her taste in the movies, maybe. I don't know. Um, no, she probably didn't want to go out with me again. But this movie that we saw on this date was called Little Shop of Horrors. Have you ever seen that stupid movie? That is, is it Rick Moranis that's in that? Oh, my word. I hate that movie. Yes. I, that stupid movie. It's like, it's part musical and all this. And all I remember, but I have learned something spiritual through that movie that has changed me. I really have. Uh, and I'm not recommending you see it, but, but it was a, a great spiritual lesson. So the premise in this movie is, and if I botch it, just let me botch it, because it's a bad movie. It doesn't matter. But from what I remember, at 17, 16, 17-year-olds 17 sitting in this theater in Joplin, is this guy gets a plant. And at some point, this thing looks like a Venus flytrap-type plant. I don't know what happens, if he cuts his finger or somehow, but a drop of blood falls into this plant. I know this is a stupid movie. Just let me go. I'm going to get to the point here in a second. And all of a sudden, this plant talks, which is never a premise for a good movie. And, and the plant eventually says, feed me, Seymour. Just a stupid premise. And he realizes that this plant wants blood. And so it gets, every time he feeds this plant, it begins to grow. And the more blood he feeds it, the bigger the plant gets until eventually this plant basically overtakes his entire shop and it just keeps crying, feed me, Seymour. You know what it keeps saying over and over. And he keeps feeding this thing, all kinds. It's just this weird, bizarre movie about a guy feeding a plant and this plant continues to grow, continues to grow, continues to grow. And the more blood he feeds it, the hungrier it gets. And he can never satisfy the appetite of this plant. And it just gets bigger and bigger. It devours, it devours, it devours. And that is the nature of living inside of us. The then the moment, the moment it even gets a taste of sin, oh, baby, feed me, feed me. It just gets a little, a little hint. You know what it's like. You, your heart and mind is in the right place. And I'm, I'm, this, this affects guys and, and men and women in the room, but I'm going I'm to just come right at the guys here for a second. You know, you're trying to keep your mind in the right place and you're just doing nothing but enjoying a Sunday afternoon of football and it cuts to a shot that all of a sudden takes your mind to lust in ways you don't want it to. And all of a sudden you feel that little welling up that says, feed me. Oh, you know it. You heard it. And you're like, where would that come from? Where would that come from? Just one quick little shot on a TV screen of the right image and the next thing you know, feed me. And you know that the moment you feed it, it's never going to be satisfied, is it? You can give it a taste. And you can think, okay, all right, I'll, I'll just feed it just a little bit, just a little bit. You know, I'll just kind of watch this one commercial. No big deal. No big deal. It's going kind to of watch this commercial. And then all of a sudden, it's never quite enough because it's piqued your interest. And it's caused your heart, your blood to get going. It's caused your mind to start thinking. And the next thing you start wondering, what if it's going to come on? And then that's never enough. And the next thing you know, you find yourself either at a computer or at a store, wherever it is. I'm picking on the guys right now because they understand that because it's the world we live in. All of a sudden, your mind just starts racing places that you never intended to go. And that sinful nature inside of you says, feed me. The key is you just can't feed it. You just got to starve it, man. You will not get rid of it until the king of kings and lord of lords comes with with king of kings, lord of lords, tattooed on his thigh, He comes in on a horse. And at some point, he will deliver you completely. But until that day, you live in a now and not yet. You live in a world where you know you've been redeemed. You know you're a son and daughter of a king. But there's this moment, this transition period where that sinful nature still is going to be haunting you. It's still going to chase after you. Yes, it's been defeated. Yes, it's been conquered. But it's still a part of your story. It's still a part of your journey. And the kicker in all of this is, man, you just can't feed it. And you know that if you starve it. You know if you press it down, it's always still there. But the more you starve it, the weaker it gets. The longer you can starve it, the easier it gets. But all it takes is just one moment where you start feeding again. Can't tell you how many good Christian men I've known that have walked with Jesus for years, and it's just that one time when they start feeding again. And then, wham, they are gone, man. They're gone, whether it be addiction. They're gone with something in their marriage. They're gone. I'm just telling you, you're going to face this. We're all going to face it. You just can't feed the beast. Don't feed it. And when, that, when Satan starts putting that trap out there, he's got the bait on it, and you start getting lured in and drawn in like James says, or all of a sudden, just like a fish, he casts that bait and it trolls right across in front of your face, you've got to literally, like a fish, turn the other way and go, no, 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 I'm not even going to look at that bait anymore. not even going to look at that bait. And here's the beautiful news in all of it. We're going to get this regeneration. Let's keep going. We can't leave it hanging there. Let's finish this thing in Romans. We'll go back to James. He He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, verse 18, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. This is Paul writing this. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That's why I'm talking about Paul, those two natures living in you. The two different things that Paul's talking about there. He said, I find this lot at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. And maybe you felt that way, like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to be close to you. Jesus, I want to follow you. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Ever felt that way? Man, I have. Man, I have. God, I don't want to think that way. God, I don't want to say that. God, I want to control my attitude. God, I don't want to go down that road. God, I don't want my heart to feel this way. God, I don't want to think those thoughts. God, I don't want to do those, whatever it is. God, I don't want to be this. I want to be yours. And the next thing I know, wham, that bait comes across. My head snaps like I've got whiplash and I'm gone, man. What have I done? Are you kidding me? I just said that again? What what in the world? Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And here is the glorious truth in all of it. And James will get to it in the last verse. He says, so then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And then he says this, the most important part. There should not be an eight. That thought should have kept on going. hate the fact that there's a new chapter. Because you kind got to stop there like, ick. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, 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 we got to move on to 8.1. If we stop there, I I think that's just a theological train wreck. You got to move to 8.1, because 8.1 is the most important part of that whole writing. Where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so He condemned the sin in the sinful man. Beautiful thing. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in that moment that you you know, you know feed that sinful desire, and it cries out, feed me, Seymour. It wants more anger. It wants more gossip. It wants more of whatever it is. In that moment, you feed it. And it's like, yeah, there it is. All you have to do is say, I claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Shut up, sinful nature. You do not own me. You do not defy me. I do not belong to you. I'm a child of the King. You have been conquered. Someday I will be delivered from this body. I'll be set free to live for eternity with Jesus. And you will be conquered and defeated. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that you can bring an accusation against me that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has not already paid for. You don't own me. Yes, I screwed up today. Yes, I fed you today. Yes, I did. I gave you your desire today. But I'll starve you tomorrow. You ain't getting a meal tomorrow. Buckle up. Gonna be a long time for you to eat again. And when you feed that nature, you just look at it and go, I know I fed it again. That's not who I am. I know there's a nature. I know you want to eat. My goal today is to starve you. That's what my plan is. You're not getting any food today. I'm going to starve you until you're so spiritually, you're going to be so weak, sinful nature, that you don't even know how to survive within me. That the power of God inside of me is going to utterly destroy you, and I'm going to trust in Jesus to sanctify me from the inside out, purify me from the inside out so much that when you cry out your voice, sounds so anemic and weak that I can't even hear it. And then there's going to come a day where you feed it again. And when you feed it again, you say, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That I claim the blood of Christ in the midst of my sin. I know that I can't solve this nature and I can't take it away. But Jesus' blood has covered and devoured and drowned it. I claim Jesus and I claim his grace and I claim his mercy. And I don't claim perfection. I don't claim to be, you, to, to be self-righteous or holy. All I claim is Jesus. And I want to tell you that in the midst of all of this sin talk, it's got to be layered on the fact that you've already been redeemed. It's just the now and not yet you got to deal with. You got the now of where you live and the nature you got to deal with, but there's a not yet. It's not always going to be like this. Let's keep going back to James. Hopefully that helped. Back to James, and I'm sorry I get wound up. It's just who I am. I'm not sorry. It's just, just who I am. So here we go. Let's. I got to check time here. Where are we at? Holy smokes! I've been going too long. All right, here we go. Back to verse fifteen. He says, "Then after desires conceived, gives birth to sin." We already talked about that. Um, you know, you know this is not spontaneous. This issue we talked about. It. It's not like it, it wakes up and rings your doorbell. A love way Martin Luther says it. Old, old, old theologian. He says, "You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair." Great thought can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can't keep them from messing in your hair. And I think it's that moment of saying, you know what, I cannot keep Satan from casting the bait in front of me, but I don't have to take it. I can't stop him from setting traps in front of me. Like, I've got no control over the television and what commercials or what the next shot's going to be. I, don't, I have no idea. I don't know what's going to be there. You know what, and you could say, well, I'll just get rid of television. Well, yeah, then just walk outside, okay? You don't have to go very far for temptation to arise. But what you can do is say, I can make the choice, the power of Jesus, not to take the bait. And in the moments I do take the bait, in the moments I am drawn away, and in those moments I step back, and again, I still rely on the blood of Jesus. I still rely on the saving grace of Jesus, and I realize there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all I do is turn to him. Let's keep moving quickly. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. If, you're gonna, if you like to write things down, we were going to read all these, but I got wound up telling a little shop of horror stories. Uh, that phrase is used uh, a few of the times in Scripture I think are interesting that might be interesting for Bible study later on. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that word, do not be deceived, you'll see it there. You're also going to see it in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Great things to read later on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, 15.33. And then for you guys write it down again, Galatians 6.7 is another great place to read. And then 1 John 3.7. Let me read those again because I saw several of you guys writing those down. First Corinthians 6.9, 1 Corinthians 6, 15.33, Galatians 6.7, 1 John 3.7. God is not the author of temptation. Um, so 15 is going to warn us against the temptation to yield to temptation because of the judgment of God. But here in a second, 17 is going to tell us to avoid temptation because of the goodness of God. Uh, let's keep going. So, so far it's been like, yikes, scary stuff uh, talking about death, he says, "Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that he might be kind of first fruits of what he created." As we get into this, Paul uses two, or James uses two different words here, um, when he says, "Every good and perfect gift." Uh, it's interesting to me. It may not be good to you, but I'm going to dive into it for just briefly. That good and perfect gift, there's two different things there. Um, have you ever known somebody who gives gifts? You know people give gifts? Like you've got people you know, like, man, they give gifts. Then have you ever known somebody, like, they've got this unique ability to, like, give, like, like there's some people that give gifts. And you're like, oh, man, thanks. I, I didn't know I needed a box of mushrooms, but thank you. Um, but then there's somebody that's like, they walk up and, and I like mushrooms. I don't know why I picked that. If you give mushrooms out, I'll probably offend at somebody. But, but then there's somebody that walks up and they don't just give gifts. They give like, like whoa, how, how did you know? Like, wow. It's like, you're like are you like you in my head? Like, are you in my thoughts? Like, how did you know that that, that, would, that would mean so much to me? Like, there's a difference between you know people that can give you a gift. And then there's somebody who just, man, they just know how to give you the right gift. And and then it's just like it's just a whole different level of special. What James is saying is is here is man. Not only do you have a God who gives gifts, He's a gift giver. He does it every morning with the sunrise. (coughs) He does in the fact that He lets your taste buds enjoy a good steak. He does in the fact that He allows you to continue breathing oxygen in this room. It's a good gift that He allowed the blood to keep pumping through your through your heart, and none of us drop dead during the time we're here together. That's a good gift. He gives a good gift in in our families. He gives a good gift in our friendships. But all of a sudden, he says, not only does he give gifts, but, man, he gives the perfect gift. He's a gift giver. That's his nature. And so for those in the room that are gift givers, you are made in the image of God. He's a gift giver. But he's also also somebody who knows how to give just the right thing. And that's the beautiful thing that James is getting at here. And he says, "Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights." I'm not going to. Huh. There's cool things there we're not going to get into. Who does not change like the shifting shadows because of time? We're not going to. We're not going to touch on all that. I'm going to skip over some stuff here because I want to land this. Um, that word. Um, where was it? I, I want to hit on that. That word that he talks about from above. Where's that at? What verse is that? Somebody find that for me. From above, where he says, seventeen. That from above, interesting. Uh, if you'll go back and read that later on, and uh, and follow that up, you find that in John three seven when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he talks about you know how the sun has come down from above, and it's just kind of a neat parallel between Nicodemus talk and James talk here. It's it's a pretty cool connection that we don't have time to mine into. We had time, I just wasted our time. Let's be honest. Um, so point I want to make is it gets into this whole, this whole bottom line issue. When you get down to verse 18, he says he chose to give us birth. Now understand, without Jesus, we have a nature that gives birth to sin. And that sin gives birth to death. Okay? We, we've read that earlier in James. Jesus is something different. He does something cool here, just like he does with Nicodemus. He gives us a new birth, a new birth in him, that when we go through that process of of believing, putting our faith in Him, repenting, confessing, obedience into baptism, walking with Him, being completely regenerated. That's why we use that phrase that we've been born again, that we were born to the point at one life where sin had taken root and we had death. We were dead men walking, dead women walking. That's who we were. But through this process of coming to Jesus, it's as if we have been born again. Let's look at one more text. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 17. Read that one to your groups real quick before we wrap up. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Another great verse to underline. Another great verse to underline. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. No matter what accusation that your enemy tries to bring against you, are you in Christ? I'll be honest with you. You're trying to stand on your own merits. You're trying to do the American way, pull yourself by your own, by your own bootstraps, and you're trying to will yourself to spirituality you're just done. It's not going to work for you. The best thing that you can do is literally just fall on your knees before a holy God and go, hey, God, I screwed up again. He's like, oh, I knew you would. That's why there's no condemnation. Don't worry. Enemy can't touch you. I'm your judge. They can bring accusations. He says, but, but I will testify on your behalf. You're good. We're good. You go, like, well, God, you know, I need to get my act together. No, 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 I don't need you to get your act together. What I need you to do is just, just trust me. Put all of of your trust in me. That you don't have to will yourself to see how many days you can go without sin. It's not about finding how many days you can live the perfect life. It's not about all of the the markers you want to measure to find out if you're spiritual. Maybe the best measure for some of us right now in the midst of trials and temptation is, do you still turn to Jesus when you hurt? Do you still turn to Jesus when you make a mistake? Can you, in, in humility, literally... And I don't mean metaphorically, I mean literally on your knees, go before holy God and say, I screwed up again. Because if your only posture is, God, I'll do better, that's not the posture you need. Posture you need is, God, can you continue to redeem me? Can you continue to forgive me? Because I continue to vault your feet. And I think that when you have that posture, that's when the doing to better, all of that stuff comes together. When you fall on your knees out of reverence for him and you put your eyes on him in the midst of all of your screwed up mistakes, you fix your eyes on him, all of a sudden this crazy thing starts happening. That nature starts getting really quiet. And you find yourself going, you know what? I used to not be able to go a day without doing that. And I've, I've gone a week. Huh, imagine that and you find yourself consistently falling on your feet before him asking him to regenerate you day by day to make you new every single day god make me a new creation i claim you i claim your authority i claim you when you take that posture each and every day all of a sudden that bait comes across in front of your face like no 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 i don't want that i don't need that today i don't need that today it's going to be a great book lots more to talk about can't wait to see as you guys start getting into this whole issue of listening and doing next week lots more that we could have talked about out of this text but i know i'm way over time right now thank you we'll see you next week thank you for listening to a wednesday night class from christ church of Orinoco. for more information about these classes or about christ church in general visit us online at ccochurch.com